Verse 11. Nathan said to Bathsheba, Salma's mother, has it been reported, Salma's mother, has it been reported to you that Haggath, son of Adonijah, has become king behind our master's back? Now let me give you some advice as to how you can save your life and your son Solomon's life. Visit the king David and say to him, My master, O king, did you not solemnly promise your servant, surely your son Solomon will be the king after me? He will sit on my throne, so why has Adonijah become king? While you are still there speaking to the king, I will arrive and verify your report. So Nathan says, this isn't right. He shouldn't become king. Now Nathan's worried. But the question is, he says, did not David promise that Solomon would be king? But do we have that in the Bible? No. Is Nathan making something up? Is he speaking on God's behalf? And we don't know that because there's no sustaith the Lord. Or did David truly promise this and it's not recorded in the Bible anywhere? We don't know. We do not know which one of those three is the right answer. We just know that Nathan says this is not good and we agree with him, but Solomon should be it. And we're like, but we don't know who that is. I mean, we do now. But if you're reading the story for the first time, you don't know who he is. But notice what he's doing here. He's getting Bathsheba with him because they're going to tag team. First, he's going to send Bathsheba in and then he's going to come in. So there is a little bit of a manipulative agenda going on here. What is he doing? The first thing he says, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. Why would he specifically mention Adonijah's mother? Because a lot of times these mothers didn't like each other. They came from different nations. They were all forced to be with each other. We've seen this with Rachel and Leah. We've seen this with like um, Hagar and um, Sarah. Why didn't they usually get along with each other? And rightfully so. <laughs> so he might be trying to spark a fuel that's already, or a, a rivalry that's already there and get her riled up like, yes, I need to do something, like bring all those emotions. And what he's doing is he's sending in her first, David's favorite wife. So David would be more likely to be emotionally persuaded and then Nathan would come with the, the big authoritative guns. So let's woo him and kind of appeal to him emotionally with his favorite wife and his favorite son. And then I will come in with the authoritative arm of God and kind of emphasize this. And so what you're going to notice when Bathsheba goes and talks to David, she's going to be very emotionally persuasive. Nathan's going to come along later and he's going to say almost the exact same facts that he has, but it's going to be more in a political, authoritative, theological kind of way. And David's going to get hit with the emotions and the politics with, different, with the same facts. And they're going to come at different times so that David will get kind of a one-two punch thing there. And they're going to hold him to a promise. But here's what's interesting. When they go in, David never ever says, I didn't promise Solomon, which begins to make us think, well, okay, then he did. Because David was a pretty strong guy. And just because he's kind of weak physically probably doesn't mean his resolve is weak. There's nothing in the text. In fact, when we get his last final words to Solomon, he seems still very mentally sharp and has a great will. So it would be very easy for him to say, I never promised Solomon. But he never denies that. He immediately heeds to it. So probably he did. So what's the problem here? He never publicly proclaimed Solomon. Because remember one of David's big weaknesses when it came to his family was what? Do you guys remember? He had no problem putting people in their place in the nation as a dominant 
righteous king, but he could not deal with his own family in a just way. And this is the worst thing for a father like that to have to do now. Pick what son is going to become king. Because that will automatically lose the favor of all the other sons. And God forbid my sons not like me for doing the right thing. And that's a big struggle that David has. And so he probably promised his favorite wife that his son could become king. But he never publicly announced it because then that would risk his other sons not liking him while he was still alive. And David couldn't handle rejection from friends and family. He could not handle rejection. So this is all David's fault. Once again, why did Israel begin to split from Judah in those wars? David knew what he was supposed to with his son. All these problems are because David didn't do what he was supposed to do because he was too weak to just stand up to his own family and do what is right. Now, granted, I sympathize with him. It's hard to do what is right with your family when you know, like, your kids or whatever are going to say, I hate you or stomp off and that kind of stuff. And you're like, what, they do this forever, okay? But at the same time, that's not right. So they go in. So Bathsheba, verse 15, visited the king in his private quarters, and the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king, which means she was lying next to him naked underneath the blankets. Blankets. Awkward. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One wife walks in on the other wife, and you're like, oh, you're the younger, beautiful version of me. Bathsheba bowed down to the floor before the king, and the king said, what do you want? She replied to him, My master, you swore an oath to your servant by Yahweh your God. Solomon your son will be the king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now look, Adonijah has become king. But you, my master, the king, are not even aware of it. Oh, that's, that's a jab. There's nothing worse than a king or a president who does not know what's going on in his own nation. And a big thing. It's not like... I mean, this is a big political event, and she kind of jabbed. You're ignorant, you politician, of what's going on in your own nation. But you, my master the king, are not even aware of it. He has sacrificed many cattle, steers, and sheep, has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited your servant Solomon. That was one of the things I forgot to mention. Why invite all the sons but not Solomon? maybe he's figured out that Solomon has been chosen by David, which means he's going behind David's back as well. He's not just following cultural customs. He's actually disobeying his father. And notice, too, that he didn't wait for his father to appoint him. He seized it on his own initiative. This is just like Adam and Eve in the garden, taking what is not theirs because they've decided that it's good for them. Now, my master, O king, all Israel is watching anxiously to see who is named to succeed my master, the king, on the throne. Everybody in the kingdom is waiting for you to make a decision. You're not just failing to honor your promise as a husband and a father. You're failing to do the right thing of your people as a king. And you don't know what's going on. It's just like jab, jab, jab. If a decision is not made when my master, the king, is buried, with his ancestors, my son Solomon and I will be considered state criminals. And that's true. From what we've learned about Adonijah's character, one of the first things that a king usually did in the ancient world was usually kill all the previous wives and all the sons to make sure there was no competition for the throne. 
And what we've learned about Adonijah so far is he's probably that kind of a guy. And she is now appealing to him emotionally. I and my son are going to die if you don't step up and publicly announce your promise to me. Your favorite wife, your favorite son are going to be dead. Dead at worst, best on the run. David knows what it's like to be on the run. Then, while she was still speaking to the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. And Nathan entered and bowed before the king with his face to the floor. And Nathan said, My master, O king, did you announce Adonijah will be the king after me? And king after me, he will sit on my throne. So Nathan like calls him out. Did you actually appoint Adonijah? Poor David. He's just like getting rebuked here. But that's the job of the prophet, remember? For today he has gone down and sacrificed many cattle, middle steers, sheep, and has invited all the king's sons and the army's commanders and Abiathar, the priests. At this moment they are having a feast in the presence and they have declared long live King Adonijah. So basically he's saying Adonijah already has made himself king. It's almost too late to do anything about it. But he did not invite me. Now notice he's focusing more on the politics. She says they're sacrificing, but my son's not there. And he was left out. And now I'm going to die. And Solomon's going to die. Nathan focuses on the fact that he's made sacrifices, but they're proclaiming him as king. And politically, everybody's following him right now. And he's already announced himself as king. So it's a more political twist on the exact same facts. But he did not invite me, your servant, or Zadok. That's political. See, notice Bathsheba says, I and Solomon are not there. Nathan says, the prophet, the priest, and the highest general not there. That's politics. The priest Benaiah, son of Jehoiadad, or your servant Solomon. Has my master the king authorized this without informing your servants? Who should succeed my master the king on this throne? And everything right here lets you know David has failed. David has failed to do the right thing. He has failed to hold true to his promises. So King David responded, verse 28, Summon Bathsheba. She came and stood before the king, and the king swore an oath, As certainly as Yahweh lives, he who has rescued me from every danger, I will keep today the oath that I swore to you by Yahweh, God of Israel. Surely Solomon, your son, will be king after me. He will sit in my place on my throne. That is the first time now that everything that Nathan and Bathsheba have said has now been validated. Right now, the narrator, you, the reader, have been kind of been like, okay, who's right? Who's right? And now for the first time, you're like, okay, David did say this. King David said, summon Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiadad, and they came before the king. So you got the priest who's in charge of anointing and the prophet who's the voice of God and the general who will make sure this all happens. And he told them, take your master's servant with you and put my son Solomon on my mule and lead him down to the Gihon spring. There Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet would anoint him king over Israel and then blow the trumpet and declare, long live King Solomon. Then follow him up as he comes and sits on my throne. He will be king in my place. I have decreed that he will rule over Israel and Judah. 
Benaiah, son of Jehoiadad, responded to the king, So be it. May Yahweh, God of my master, the king, confirm it. As Yahweh is with my master, the king, so may he be with Solomon, and may he make him an even greater king than my master, King David. You see a whole bunch of repetition. Over 15 times, David says, He will sit on my throne. He is, I will make him king. Put him on my mule. Many times that he's connecting, David is connecting himself to Solomon. So the first thing they'll do is to get him and take him to the spring. The spring is a source of life. Okay, it's the anointing, that kind of stuff. But notice that David says, put him on my mule. There was something about David's mule that everybody had seen David on that mule at lots of occasions, riding through the streets. So David is saying, I'm directly connecting him to me visually in front of all the people by the fact that he'll sit on my mule as if he is me. Now, the other reason it's a mule is because mules, which is a, a, a better, is more of a cross between a horse and a donkey than it is what we think of as a donkey or a mule. And mules were a lot more stable footed in high hill countries like Israel. You don't want to take horses up into steep hills. And so they were considered a very reliable, practical animal for this terrain of Israel. But they were also very expensive animals to buy. And usually only really wealthy business people or kings could afford them. So therefore they became a symbol of kingship. So not only is he sitting on David's mule, but he's sitting on a symbol of kingship, authority, and power. That's why Jesus rode the donkey or the mule in Jerusalem. We often think that was a humbling moment because that's what mules are in our culture. We're like, wow, they're not as great as a horse. Horses are um, stealthy and beautiful and, and strong and majestic. And mules are just Shrek. Okay? Um, but that's because we're thinking like a European. And horses are all that and donkeys are all that. But... This is a mule, and it has that look of a horse, but it has the reliability of a donkey. In the ancient world, it was an absolute symbol of kingship. Now, it should kind of make sense from the context of Jesus, too, because as he's riding through the streets, they're all declaring him king, which is not very humble. They're throwing palm branches and cloaks down on him, which is not very humble. And he never stopped them from doing any of it, which is not very humble. So how him riding a donkey overrode everything else that they're doing and made us think humility, I don't know. So it's kingship. Now, it's also interesting that the only person who's ever done this in the First Testament is Solomon. And the only other person who ever does this in the Bible is a descendant of Solomon, Jesus. Now, it happened a lot in the ancient world, but as far as actually recording it. And Zechariah specifically prophesies the day that the anointed Messiah will ride in on the mule. And in that context, it is obvious kingship. It is obvious kingship. Because he talks about power and ruling and that kind of stuff. So Jesus is being portrayed as another Solomon. The difference is, the whole point of Jesus, when he comes along, he's going to be another Adam, another Solomon, another David another Elijah, another Moses. But he's not going to fail like all of them, and he's going to go over and beyond them and become so much greater than any of them that you'll no longer be thinking about the similarities anymore because it will be so different blowing them all out of the water. And that's intentionally what the author is doing. 
The authors in the Gospels are intentionally trying to make you think, oh, that's Solomon, that's Moses, but oh my gosh, he's way better than them. And then you don't even think about them anymore. Then he tells them that they are to sit him on his throne and declare him before all of Israel that he is king. So David is now finally stepping up and making sure that this all happens. Verse 38, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites, who are David's personal bodyguards and warriors, went down and put Solomon on King David's mule and led him to the Gihon. And Zadok the priest took a horn, and horns were symbolic of power, because um, cattle and oxen and rams had horns. And when those things charge you and slam into you, they are very authoritative and very strong. I think I mentioned this before when we were at the zoo. They've got the mountain goat at the zoo. And it's like, one of the, it's like I think, the or one of the largest goats in like all the world. That kind, not that particular goat, but that kind of goat. Um, but he's got these giant horns. And I didn't know at the time, but I'm standing there with my little girls, like right up against that glass. And we're looking, we're like, oh, look at the mountain goat over there. Well, it turns out that he, when he looks at us, he sees his reflection. This is what the zookeeper told me later. And um, he thinks it's another male goat that's coming into his territory. So he's got to dominate it. And he charged as fast as I've ever seen any animal go. And he put his head down and slammed into it. And it was freaky. Like when you're standing with your two little girls and that thing's coming at you. And that, that glass or plexiglass or hybrid or whatever it is, thank God for modern technology, <laughs> that whole thing v- verberated like the gong show or something. And, and, just like, and it was like, oh, my goodness. We if we were out in the open, we would have been dead. And then it was at that moment I realized, that's why horns are a symbol of power and authority in ancient world. Okay? And we've all seen bulls and Looney Tunes and the, the running of the bulls and that kind of stuff. So horns are a symbol of power and authority. So they cut this horn off, they fill it with the anointing oil, which means this is authority. The anointing is God's will, and the horn is authority, and it's being poured on Solomon's head. Therefore, he is now willed with all of God's authority to lead Israel. That's the idea. By the prophet, who knows who should be there. And nowhere is he being judged or condemned for doing this. So this is what they do. All the people begin to proclaim, long live Solomon. People are, the crowds are fickle. They were just saying that about Adonijah. And then they just switch over completely like that. Because now David has publicly backed him. Now, little did Adonijah know why he's in his room now Adonijah, verse 41, and all of his guests heard the commotion just out as they were feast, finished eating. So Adonijah is already king. He thinks he is. He's been celebrating. He took the crown. He walked through the streets. The people said, long live Adonijah. And he's at home partying with his guests. We did it. And little does he know, it didn't last long. And so he asked, why is there such a noisy commotion in the city? As he was still speaking, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. And Adonijah said, come in, for an important man like you must be bringing good news. That's such a dumb assumption. Like, you're important, it must be good news. Like, that never made sense to me. That's why he shouldn't be king. No logic. 
Jonathan replied, Adonijah, no, our master king David. He's the son of Abiathar who supported Adonijah, and Adonijah was supposedly king. But notice that the son is saying, our master David. He's making it very clear who still is the authority here. Adonijah has declared that his dad is no longer the authority because he's no longer a man. But Jonathan said, yeah, but what I just saw looked a lot like David acting like a man. (laughs) He kind of took things into his hands and made things happen. And you're completely oblivious to it. So he said, no, our master, King David, has made Solomon king. The king sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiadad, um, Jehoiadad, and the Carathites and the Pelathites. Basically, the only authorities that matter. King, prophet, priest, and a younger version of Joab. You might have made yourself king, but you didn't have the right authorities backing you. They put him on his mule. Then Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed him king in the Gihon, and they went up from Rita rejoicing, and the city is in up uproar. The city backs him too. That is the sound you hear. Furthermore, Solomon has assumed the royal throne. The king's servants have even come to congratulate our master king David, saying, May your God make Solomon more famous than you and make him an even greater king than you. Then the king leaned on the bed and he said this, Yahweh God of Israel is worthy to praise because today he has placed a successor on my throne and allowed me to see it. So now he's quoting David. At that, all of Adonijah's guests panicked and jumped up and rushed off in separate ways. <laughs> Can you imagine the president's cabinet just doing it all of a sudden? Like they just jump up and run out of the White House. And he's all by himself. Because they know what that means. They all know politics well enough. It says, like, the right people aren't backing us. Everything that we just did means nothing. Because we didn't have the right power and the right authority. Adonijah feared Solomon. So he got up and went and grabbed a hold of the hold, hold of the horns of the altar. Now the altar was a square altar that you sacrifice animals on, but it had these horns on all four corners because horns represent authority. So the altar has the authority to remove sins or cover sins in the First Testament sense. Culturally speaking, in other nations, if somebody wanted, like they were going to be killed for their crimes, they would run to the altar of their pagan god, jump on the altar, and grab a hold of the horns. And what they were doing is they were saying, I know I deserve to be sacrificed and killed for my crimes, but by holding the horns and begging for mercy to be allowed to live. There is no basis for that in the biblical law. Nowhere does God say that he w- that's something you can do and something he would honor. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 14, God says something about taking them off the altar and the horns and punishing them. And what he basically says, if they're not guilty of murder, then let them go. If they are guilty of premeditated murder, then pull them off the horns of the altar and kill them. So God is basically saying, I don't care if they threw themselves on the altar or not. If they're guilty, they're guilty. Justice is not done by who can get to the altar first. Justice is done by whether you're guilty or not. He throws himself on the horns, begging for mercy, basically. Solomon, verse 51, was told, Look, Adonijah fears you. See, he has taken a hold of the horns of the altar, saying, My king Solomon, Solomon, 
promise me today that you will not kill his servant and his sword. So all that power as manhood has gone out the window. Solomon said, if he is loyal subject, not a hair of his head will be harmed. But if he is found to be a traitor, he will die. King Solomon sent the men to bring him down from the altar, and he came and bowed down to King Solomon, and Solomon told him to go home. Solomon actually shows him grace, and he lets him live. Solomon, basically, if you translate this modern-day language, he's basically saying this. If From this point on, I've now been declared king. If you're loyal to me, I'll let you live. But if you show one teeny little inkling of opposing me, I will kill you. So in this way, Solomon is showing grace and justice. The question is, which one should he have done? Now, in some sense, Adonijah has not done anything really worthy of death penalty. So it really would truly have been unjust, biblically speaking, for Solomon to have executed him. Yes, he has rebelled against authorities, but the only rebellion that's punishable by death is the shaking your fist in the face of somebody and saying, I don't care what you do to me, screw you, I'm going to keep doing it. But he's not. He's not doing that. So if Solomon killed him, that would actually have been a political Near Eastern act of violence, not a biblical act. So in this sense, Solomon actually acted well and allowed him to live. The whole idea is that Solomon now is king. And the question of who should be king has now been answered. 